Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Natalie Kitruff. Natalie Kitruff covers heavy industry in the American economy as a reporter at the New York Times. She previously covered the California economy at the Los Angeles Times and higher education and student debt at Bloomberg. She's won three awards from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers for her reporting on the California economy and predatory student loans. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Ms. Natalie Kitruff. Thank you all for being here. I'm going to um, introduce our panelists. Um, David Levenger is a managing director in the Emerging Market Markets Group at TCW. He previously served as senior coordinator for China Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department and as minister counselor for financial affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Ed Lemer is an economist at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. He previously directed UCLA Anderson Business Forecasts and serves as a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Michael Camunas is the president and CEO of Monarch Global Strategies. He previously served as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Trade and Compliance in the Obama administration, where he concentrated on rebalancing U.S. economic policy toward Mexico. He has also served as Special Counsel to the President in the Office of the White House Counsel. Daniel Sumner is the director of the University of California Agricultural Issues Center. He previously served as a senior economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors and at the United States Department of Agriculture, focusing on international trade and policy. So I want to begin our conversation with a look at how we got here. Um, 2016 obviously put trade on the map. I know that trade has, has long been an issue for all of us up here, but for the country, trade became a kind of political issue and one that seemed to have teeth that moved a lot of voters to the polls and certainly um, engaged Trump supporters and, and the base that perhaps some of us here didn't know existed. So, um, Ed, can you take us through the kind of economics of this and, and what happened? How did we get here? So we're here at the Center for the Preservation of Democracy, as I understand, and, and, with, and perhaps without realizing it, that's really what we're talking about today. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, we, we built our democracy in the factories of America, where we created uh, uh, high-quality, middle-class lives for large numbers of Americans. So back in the 60s, we had about 35% of our workforce in manufacturing. Starting around 1970, we had a surge of imports and exports, a share of GDP, and at that particular point, the <clears throat> jobs in manufacturing slowed down and they peak in around 1985 and then declined dramatically. So they're down now to about seven or eight percent of the workforce where they were 35% before. Seven or eight percent doesn't create much in the way of jobs for our high school graduates. So the fundamental question is, how can we have a sustained democracy if we don't do something about bringing these manufacturing jobs back in some way? And you look around for the culprits that might have contributed, mm. and it's really three things, which are product innovation isn't the same as it used to be, uh, process innovation allows the, the few to do the work of many, and then there's foreign trade. and and. Uh, Foreign trade was thought by economists to be a source of concern, even in the even in the 70s. There were a lot of papers written about it, but uh, why? Why was it? 
what was concerning about it? Well, because that's when the, the jobs market started to change. You know, you had a stagnation of incomes. In the 60s, you had a huge surge of the economy and you had income growth at every level of the income distribution. When Trump says, make America again, great again, that's what I, he's talking I about. think he's thinking about the 60s. And then beginning in the 1970s, <laughs> things changed dramatically. And the, and the outcome, particularly for the middle class and lower uh, <coughs> income Americans, started not to look so good. And can you talk about the role that China played there? So then the economists, uh, n notably, I had a debate with Paul Krugman about this, whether trade was a contributing factor or was it technology. And Krugman's view was it was primarily technology and not trade. I thought trade was playing a role in this. You could see it in the apparel sector and the shoes were the first thing that left the United States. So it definitely, the, that trade was playing a role. The question is how big it was. But it was still in the background. Mm -hmm. But then in the 1990s came this surge of imports from China and just changed the whole global landscape of international trade. So now it's much easier when you're looking at culprits, whether it's process, product innovation mm -hmm. or technological change in the workplace or foreigners. It's a lot easier now to point to a foreigner as the source of the problem rather than to point to us, which is if we had the best educational system in the world, we wouldn't really worry about our workforce competing with the Chinese. Right. And can I just jump yes, in there? I, mean, I, I thought you might want to. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think you know, trade, sadly, is an easy target. Uh, and foreign trading partners are, are easy to pick off because it's such a compelling visceral visual, right? Sure. People see factories being shuttered and workers being laid off, and it, it, it is a very um, wrenching experience. And the truth is there, are, there is dislocation that comes from trade, and we've done a miserable job as a country, to your point about education, not only investing and preparing our work for our children and our, work, our young people for the economy of the future, right? We're still on an agrarian educational model that is not preparing our kids for the realities of the modern economy. We're, we're hardly even graduating them. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, um, I think w the, the real culprit is, if we want to use that word tongue-in-cheek, is technology. 80% of the jobs that have been lost over the period in which, from which, in which China entered the WTO, in which NAFTA was negotiated, 80% of those jobs have been lost because of technological innovation. It, you know, in the, um, there was a great statistic that came out uh, it's not new, but it ju I just heard it recently, um, that uh, related to steel. It used to take, and I'm going to bungle the numbers, I'll get them to you in a minute, but uh, it used to basically take uh, mm -hmm. you know, 10 hours to produce you know, a ton of steel. Right. I'm, I'm telling you right now, my numbers are off, but they're, they're roughly along these lines. Whereas today, it now takes two man hours to produce the same amount. So you've had an 80% reduction in the amount of workforce that's required to achieve the same output, and that's mm -hmm. because of improvements in technology. You can look across the economy and find similar examples, right. and that's very hard to explain, and, and there's been a profound failure uh, to, to deal with not only the, the, the population at large, but in particular those communities that have been, that have been hit right. by trade, they're taking in a disproportionate brunt for the country. Right. So, so where we end up is now we're in 2018. I'm just fast forwarding because yeah. I know we could debate about what exactly has caused job loss for about 16 hours. Um, but where we are now um, in 2018 is, so one 
member of our panel doesn't like the term trade war. Maybe more. Can you, yeah, it's you, yeah. I'm looking at you. Tell us, are we in a trade war? What's going on now? How, how do we understand what's happening? Well, we're certainly in a seminal shift in uh, how we view trade and certainly in U.S.-China relations. And I'd say the shift we're seeing in U.S.-China relations is much bigger than trade. I was in D.C. last week, and there is a rising view within the administration that China represents an existential threat to the United States in the same way the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. And I think trade policy is part of a broader policy aimed, in my view, mistakenly at trying to cut China down mm -hmm. uh, before it can become a greater competitor for the United States. And, and when we look at what's happened so far, certainly everything that's happened, we've had, I mean, the beginning let's just start with steel and aluminum. We had these steel and aluminum tariffs come out. Then it seemed like everybody was exempted except China and actually Japan, which is... Um, then there were another set of proposed tariffs announced on China, 50 billion. China's come back with two retaliatory measures. Um, is that a trade war? The, the the aluminum and steel tariffs uh, had a retaliation, and that's underway. So, but but we've gone through things like that before. That's that quantitatively is not anything different than we've done lots and lots hmm. over the last twenty or thirty years. And there's even arguments about whether that's uh, legal in the context of, of WTO provisions, the World Trade Organization that tends to govern these things. The um, the, the intellectual property measures. Uh, haven't yet taken effect on either side. That's the 50 billion. That's the 50 billion. And on those side, I, I was talking to the undersecretary in charge of trade at the Department of Agriculture, and what he says is, it turns out there's, of that 50 billion, about 10 or 15 billion of it is soybeans. So it's a big deal to farmers, particularly in what some people call Trump country in the Midwest. And what he, what he says is, we've got two or three months to cut a deal. Now, when we talk about the national defense issues, which I think you were pushing and talking about, the threat from China is more intellectual property mm. than it is toys and, 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 and stuff, right. consumer stuff. Uh -huh. And there, there really is an issue. I, I, I think anybody who's dealt with Chinese trade knows that the loss of intellectual property, some people just call it stealing, uh -huh. is a serious issue, and it directly affects national defense sort of things. But can but we Natalie, I'd say yeah. like, the question isn't, are we in a trade war? The question is, do we have a coherent and effective strategy <laughs> to get China to change its behavior? Uh -huh. And okay. I'd say unilaterally threatening China, yeah. not doing it in a multilateral context, not doing it through the WTO, Going after what the Chinese believe are their best companies, uh -huh. ZTE and Huawei, going after President Xi's signature initiative, instead of focusing on the trade and investment barriers, makes it extremely hard, if not impossible, for Chinese politicians to move. You've, if you do a deal, a deal has to be seen as a win-win on both sides. Can, can you just give 
us a sense, I'm including myself in, in the audience here, of what are, I mean, to this point of the kind of barriers to investment um, in China, um, the sorts of things that happen. When, when so we're very, talking about very simple. Yeah. I mean, forget all the details. Very simple. Great. China wants to be able to go to the U.S. or any other country and buy a market-leading company in that economy. They they did it like when they bought Smithfield Ham, the leading ham producer in the U.S. You cannot go to China and buy a leading Chinese company in any sector. Why not? You just can't do it. And it's done in ways that aren't necessarily transparent. So it's, you, you can't go and say, here's the rules in the law. Yeah. You just, there's, it can't happen. But the bigger issue from a competitiveness and even potentially from a national security issue concern is with China specifically. Yeah. Is that is the forced technology transfer. So fundamentally, to, to really strip it down, China, when it first kind of came onto the global uh, scene in the modern era, yes. um, was the workshop of the world. And there was a deliberate intentional policy to move from being the guys that assembled and did low-end, low-skilled you know, assembly to being the laboratory of the world. That, that basically, I think the fundamental concept is that China doesn't want to just make things, they want to invent things. And the way they go about, the way they have historically like recently gone about it is to say, let's woo a leading technology company to come and invest in China and we'll give you these incredible subsidies and incentives and cheap labor and we'll build, we'll, we'll move entire communities, people out of the way, we'll build you world-class mm -hmm. factories. But in exchange for our partnership and cooperation and tax incentives, you will transfer technology to us to teach us how to learn to do that. And so companies haven't had a choice if they've wanted to take advantage right. of those opportunities. And they've entered into these arrangements, and then they find shortly thereafter that there are copycat right. industries using their technology, and they right. have no meaningful way to go after. There's no enforcement of intellectual property right. rights, of patents, copyrights, right. et cetera. That is the fundamental problem. Take that then and apply it in a national security context with sensitive technologies where telephone companies, where China's now you know, manufacturing through Huawei or others, highly sensitive technologies that they now want to you know, bring into the country. Right with embedded chips and things that, you know, you can imagine the kinds of concerns that get raised. But in my opinion, the f there's caps on foreign investment, but a second core issue is forced technology transfer and the failure of the global market to really meaningfully respond to that. Right, yes. Well, I, I agree completely with the sentiment of this panel, which is that the United States comparative advantage is in technology and, and we ship exports of knowledge abroad. And, uh, and the leakage of that knowledge through uh, to China is a, is a is an extremely important issue, but this is not new stuff here. Because you roll the clock back in the 60s, and they used to talk about a technology gap, meaning that American workers had a technology that nobody else in around the globe was using for producing products, and the American products had that technological edge. But <clears throat> beginning with the surge in trade in the 60s, you start to see that technology leaking, especially to Asian countries, Japan first, and then Korea and Taiwan. So let's not single out China mm -hmm. as the main destination for American technology. And that, let's not think this is a new thing. It's a very long-standing thing. And I suppose right. that our politicians and our leaders chose to ignore that fact when it was occurring uh, decades ago, 
possibly because of the benefit of creating an integrated economic system, reducing the warfare that we become accustomed to, uh, and uh, making us more familiar with each other, and perhaps the United States is willing to surrender right. its technology for that purpose. But you know, Ed, I think there's a, 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 a bit of a difference this round, and I, I know the agricultural examples where people have patented seeds and the like, and in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, as, as Japan and Korea, Taiwan, to take examples there, and other places too, uh, improved their productivity of their own seeds. They did it through R&D and, and creating their own and buying technology. And what we're seeing now is something a little different. There really is a kind of uh, intellectual property, not, not just leakage through competition, not learning by doing and catching up, but something that's a little more aggressive than that, that I think is sponsored by the government in ways that it wasn't sponsored by the Korean government or the Japanese. Well, there's a heck of a lot of re-engineering going on in Japan and uh, yeah. Korea. I mean, I, this, this kind of thing would not be tolerated inside the country because this stuff would be patent protected. So, so, so you can have 99 China <laughs> trade panels, uh -huh. and you'll have 99 yeah. echo chambers where people go, yeah, China right. sucks. But that's not really the issue. The yeah. issue is how are we going to get them to change their right. behavior? And guess what? Like, populism and nationalism is irresistible politics mm -hmm. everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And there are Chinese politicians that are tripping over themselves to stand up to foreign bullies sure. and be seen as protecting Chinese interests Make and the China Chinese people. Yeah. So you have to, you, you can't just have the stick. Yeah. You have to have a diplomatic strategy. You have to have a public diplomacy strategy. Right. You gotta win hearts and mind. And you gotta put on the table stuff that we do that bothers them. Yeah, can we just look at the stick for a second? Because I wanna, I wanna just think for a second about what's actually gone on. So there's this, this 50 billion worth of goods that's announced to sort of be the proposed targets of new tariffs. That's a list of 1,300 products. Um, and China sort of, and then China's response. Um, what's wrong with that and who is going to suffer? First of all, do we think right now these are sort of proposed? I mean, the 50 billion and the 50 billion in response. I, I have a high level comment on this and that the Trump administration is focusing not on the terms of trade, whether we're getting a fair deal for our exports, whether our exports are well priced relative to the imports, and they're focusing on the trade imbalance, the fact that we have much more imports than we have exports. And let me say right up front that tariffs and, and uh, quotas are not going to address that trade imbalance because even if we narrow it with China, it's going to emerge somewhere else in the globe. That, chi that trade imbalance is homegrown. And, and we were having a discussion backstage about the exact logic of it, and I don't think I'm going to be able to explain it, but it comes from a country that has a very low savings rate compared to investment opportunities. These Japanese and, and Korean and Taiwanese, these Asian countries had very high savings rates compared to their investment opportunities. Because of that, they have excess savings. We need the savings because we don't have enough to fund our investments. Mm. That money has to flow into the United States. When that flows into the United States, it creates an elevated exchange rate because they're buying dollars. That elevated exchange rate makes our exports harder to sell, makes imports cheaper, and it creates the trade gap. 
So if you want to have policies that that address the problem that the Trump administration is thinking is so essential, which is the trade imbalance, mm -hmm. not the leakage of intellectual property, but the trade imbalance itself relative to a bilateral trade imbalance with regard to particular countries like Mexico or China, that that's a homegrown problem. We need more savings. We need uh, we need federal government to create policies that encourage more private savings, and we certainly need to stop the damn deficit that Uncle Sam is running year after year, which means everybody uh, who's 50 years or older is going to have to pay the bill for taking care of the elderly today, when that's totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Michael? I was just going to maybe try to get us up to maybe a 30,000-foot level, going back to your original question, because I think that, you know, to the question of, um, and it, it's really what, what Ed just touched on with, with trade deficits and the metric that Trump is using, are we in a trade war, what's behind all of this? I think fundamentally what's going on, in my opinion, is there's, there's a deep anxiety in the country, right, about economic dislocation, the lack of wa stagnant wages, people are working harder, it now takes so much more to maintain what we once thought, you know, what we once had mm -hmm. uh, for less. And Trump has tapped into this and he's, he's then, you know, playing to that anxiety using a metric, the trade deficit, as like a as like a whack-a-mole uh -huh. stick to go after our, our our partners and and it's it's so foolish because what's at stake here and this is really the fundamental point i wanted to make is this isn't this discussion really fundamentally isn't about tariffs at all it's about american leadership in the world and what's being compromised in my opinion is what Trump is doing is departing. Yes, there have been administrations that have imposed tariffs here and there, and we've had retaliatory, you know, trade, what I would call instead of wars, spats with, uh -huh. with trading partners. Yeah. But what's different this time is that Trump is, is fundamentally departing from generations now of consensus in U.S. leadership in, in terms of our foreign policy and international economic policy. We've worked very hard to build global consensus, to build up multilateral institutions like the World Trade Organization, to build up consensus around the importance of open markets and free trade, to set high standards globally um, for competition so right. that it's not a race to the bottom. And I think that's what's so dis dis disheartening. Now to come back to the trade deficit point, while we're picking this war with China, one of the things you left out was about the lack of strategy, we're, we're alienating Canada and Mexico, you uh -huh. know, which you would think if, if, if you were going to, okay, if you're going to go to war, war with China economically, you at least want to do it as a block like, like North America. How about right. TPP? Or, that's a yeah, decent walk, walking out of TPP. Yeah. And that's what's so agonizing about this, and I think that I fear that the American public doesn't understand, is that we're, what's at risk here is the abdication fundamentally of American values and American leadership on the global stage. And so this is for anybody who wants to answer. Um, what, there's been a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of threats right now. There are some tariffs that have gone into place. For those of us that are just at home trying to keep score with the latest whatever's going on, what is it? What are some examples of what Trump has done or what the administration has done, what his officials have done that have destabilized that, so that the kind of global trade regime and also the United, the America's place in it? 
Can we give some specific? Well, the biggest one was walking away from TPP. I mean. The Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. yeah, I travel across Asia. Which was, what was the TPP? Oh, the TPP was, I think the idea started in the Bush administration, was picked up and kind of finished in the Obama administration. But the idea was to set kind of the gold standard of trade agreements to cover a lot of stuff that hadn't been covered in NAFTA and other trade agreements with the biggest economies in the Pacific region, Latin mm -hmm. America and Asia, excluding China. Mm -hmm. So the crazy thing is if the administration believes that China represents an existential threat, you want to assemble a coalition of like-minded trading partners right. and kind of an anti-China coalition. We walked away from it. They went ahead without us. Mm. Can I give a really practical example of what like the TPP does? Because people are like, why does that matter? But I'll go. Can you touch yeah, this? Sure. Well, the, the only point about the TPP is that uh, the, the, I think everybody on this panel probably agrees that was a, that was a good deal. We should have done it. But it wasn't going anywhere. It was dead before Trump. You know, he might have thrown the last shovel on the grave. But, but what I do think is very important about this particular administration is they act as though rhetoric doesn't matter. And mm -hmm. I think it really does. Why? Why? So that when you have the president coming in and saying, gee, I'm going to, uh, NAFTA is a terrible deal, I'm going to get rid of it. You have business people in, in, uh, in Mexico, which is the biggest corn importer uh, from U.S. corn, saying, gee, I'll call somebody in Argentina. I really can't. I, I love the guy supplying uh, dry milk powder from California, but, gee, the government's getting in the way. I'll call the guys in New Zealand and see if they have some for me. Right. So even though you don't have a tariff yet in place, even though NAFTA may, it looks like NAFTA is not going to change at all, uh -huh. but just all the rhetoric is enough to stir things up. And maybe that's the difference between somebody who's used to private, uh, privately negotiating and doing this kind of stuff in public, it just, Interesting. It, it's causing damage, even if the tariffs never actually get applied. And I think that's really serious and long-term damage, because okay. once you lose a market, you know, it's that much harder to get it back. And I want to come back to the agriculture piece of this, because we're talking to a man who understands the industry in this country that is perhaps has the most at stake here. But Ed, what were you Yeah, saying? I think our, our political conversation about what needs to be done domestically is being diverted into an issue that could not possibly cure our problems. It's, it's a technologically driven problem. The trade imbalance could be totally cured. We might move our fraction of, of uh, manufacturing employment from 8% to 9% or 10%, but we're not going to bring it back again. We're not going to make America great again by looking to the 60s. Uh -oh. We need to recognize that we're in the midst of a transition from an industrial to a post-industrial society that's very much driven by technology, robots, artificial intelligence, and we need a workforce that's suited to the reality of the 21st century post-industrial world. And that means we need to get our educational systems totally turned around and looking forward, not looking backward, making sure that the, our kids, our graduates from high school and college will have the skills, and I think re it takes real education in a classroom it takes uh, educated individuals to compete against the artificial intelligence that they're going to compete against. And I think our schools are doing, some schools are doing an exceptional job, exceptional job, but 
too many Americans are going to be left behind in this new technological competition that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And if we spend all our time talking about China, and we're not going to fake, focus on what is a real problem, which is our educational system. Right. Michael? Just two quick points to your, you know, what harm is being done that's yes. also related. Uh, so the, besides technology, the other like tectonic shift in the economy, at least with respect to manufacturing, is that is the nature of distributed manufacturing. We source from all over the world. We have, we have uh, you know, it used to be maybe that in small town Ohio, you would make almost an entire product right there in shop. You'd machine it, you'd do everything, and you'd sell your product. Now, we source globally. Production uh, chains and supply chains are global. So one of the consequences of Trump's uh, uh, rhetoric and, and the risk is, and I'll give you a very real example, is um, so Mexico is saying, hey, the U.S. is no longer a terribly reliable partner. We don't know what's going to happen. We're going to rush out and negotiate a bunch of free trade agreements with Argentina, Brazil, and, mm -hmm. and oh, the European Union and Japan. Right. They just inked, in principle, a free trade agreement with the European Union. One of the provisions in that agreement is, it relates to agricultural products, which this gentleman can speak more to, but it's a, I, I won't get into the details, I promise, yeah. but geographical indicators, the labels. So champagne, you know, comes technically from the region of champagne. Mm -hmm. Parmesan cheese, the Europeans want to be able to sell, say you can't sell Parmesan cheese or gorgonzola cheese. You can't call it Parmesan cheese because unless it comes from the region of, you know, of Parmesan uh, yeah. or whatever it's called in Italy, uh, you know, uh, they, you can't sell it. Right. Well, th the Mexico has just agreed to that. So now all of a sudden, if when that agreement's finalized, the U.S. dairy sector, as it wants to export products, is going to have to lab relabel its products because you cannot sell Parmesan cheese in Mexico. It has to be like hard grating cheese right. now, exactly. is what Unless about. it's from Italy. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is, Say that will disrupt, that will, that, will, that will have a definite impact on not just farmers and dairy producers, but you could multiply that times a thousand in the automotive industry, mm -hmm. in, in the aerospace industry, in the electronics industry, anywhere, like take an automobile. A car's not made in Mexico. I used to have a Volkswagen Passat, you know, made in Mexico. It wasn't made in Mexico. It, the final point of assembly was Mexico, but that car was made in North America. The components uh, that were so integrated came from Canada, the United States, Mexico, parts of Asia. Right. It was a North American vehicle. Right. And so, and those North American, that North American manufacturing supports the little bit of manufacturing we yeah. still have, which is largely at the small business level in middle America. Right, right. Can we just, I mean, we've now kind of touched briefly on ag, um, but can, can you just give us a sense of sort of how vulnerable are farmers? Where are they vulnerable? We, you know, what states? And is that going to become important politically in the midterms, in the, in the election? Obviously, farmers supported Trump. There's a lot to say here. Yeah, well, uh, Unlike manufacturing, the United States, and California for that matter, is a major agricultural net exporter. So we export a lot more than we import. Uh, that really spans across lots of things. Here in California, we export a lot of dairy products. We export, obviously, wine. But the, probably the biggest category of exports are tree nuts, where we're simply uh, good at doing that, partly for high-tech reasons. It's partly the technology that we use that's built into that, lowering our costs relative to other people. Uh, so there is vulnerability uh, anytime somebody is proposing uh, uh, 
disrupting trade. If you went down the places that are the number one export destinations for California farm products, you start with Canada for the obvious reason that they eat the fruits and vegetables we produce here just like the rest of the U.S. does. Mm -hmm. And they were one of the big targets on NAFTA right away. Mexico's in the top half dozen. Uh, so is the European Union. So is Japan, who we could have cut a deal with in the TPP, and right. we didn't. Uh, and then uh, Korea, China, and Hong Kong come in. One of the things I do want to point out about the China export statistics for agriculture is that the bulk products, the corn and soybeans from the Midwest, mm -hmm. the sorghums, those kind of things, they go directly to China. Lots of what we ship from California goes to Hong Kong. You know, it's easy to think of Hong, China as a, Hong Kong as a part of China, but when it comes to trade, it's totally separate. Hong Kong has been separately a free trade zone, so the tariffs there are zero, and all the tariffs so far that Beijing is proposing don't apply to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also true, a lot of things that get shipped to China, or get to, shipped to Hong Kong, end up in China, maybe right. legally, maybe not legally. Yes. So we don't really know what's gonna happen there. It does create uncertainty for everybody in the business. Yes, that's the theme of the panel, is we don't really know what's gonna happen, but it creates uncertainty. Can, I, I have a question, this is something I'm interested in. Um, so, so China's proposed all these counter tariffs on us, um, and they're not in effect now, but how... Some are in effect. Yeah. Some are, the three billion are, but I mean, so the ones on, on soybeans, for example, aren't. It's not, but the wine is. Wine and, is and, and the, pork the is. The California stuff is. Right, but the big batch of tariffs, the big batch isn't in effect, but let's say it goes, <coughs> and, and, and we can include the ones that are already in, in effect. How, how does that play in, in China? I mean, so rate, does that, you know, we're talking about the effects of tariffs here and how bad it's going to be for us. Um, how bad will it be for them? You know, politically, will the nationalism take over? Like, take us through, if you're a Chinese politician, you know, what, what are the risks of a trade war for China? So, like, the national narrative in China in like 10 seconds is we were the biggest, richest, most important country for a thousand years. And then the imperialists came in and broke us up and made us weak. And now we're finally getting back on our feet and the West wants to keep us down. Wow. And even before the Trump administration, everything we d did seemed to kind of fit into that narrative. Uh -huh. Now, what the difference is, we actually might have an explicit U.S. policy of trying to keep yeah. China down. Yeah, in this case, it's true. So, <laughs> I tell you, when Chinese people see us going after the Made in China 2025 program, which is one of President Xi's signature initiatives, when they see what they view as not their Neanderthal state enterprises, but some of their best and most innovative technology companies, their perspective is not how closed and unfair they are. Uh -huh. It's that the West in the U.S. wants to keep them poor. And, and so it makes it hard, okay. harder, for any Chinese politician to say, well, gosh, the U.S. says we have to change all this stuff, and if the U.S. says so, gosh, I guess we got to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to say something about the retaliation that China may engage in. We act as if it's going to be a trade war, but 
the U.S. and China have been codependent in the sense that the Chinese have been relying on us absorbing their exports. Right. But we've been relying on them giving us loans. And they now have... That's not true. We can, we can me, finance our deficit from anywhere in the world. Oh, but, but the point is that they now own a couple of trillion dollars worth of treasuries, and if they want to unsettle the United States, rather than engaging in a trade war, let's start unloading some of these treasuries. Uncle Sam is not that much different from Uncle Demetrius, who, who woke up one morning and didn't, wasn't able to borrow anymore when he, Uncle Demetrius was ac had access to those same interest rates that the Germans have, if the global market starts to wake up one day, we're going to all have a very serious but they're economic downturn. they're downturn. never going to do that because it would hurt themselves. Well, the point is they, they have leverage. I'm trying to tell no, you no, no, there's no. a form of leverage. So if a bank loans me $1,000, I'm in trouble because I have to pay it back. If the bank lends me a trillion dollars, the bank's in trouble. Right. <coughs> well, they can unload, they can stop buying, and it can put, put a severe pressure on the U.S. dollar. And if you ask me where the big risk is and for the next recession, uh, the U.S. has not built up the imbalances that we traditionally had in housing and automobiles. The risks are not there. The risks are Uncle Sam's uh, profligate lifestyle and increasing deficit. And we're going to pay a price at some point when the globe wakes up. And it doesn't take a lot of tilting by the Korean Central Bank or the, or the um, <clears throat> Chinese Central Bank away from U.S. Treasuries to start bond buyers all over the globe, start thinking that the U.S. dollar, the last thing you want to be is the last one out of the U.S. dollar and the last one out of Treasuries when interest rates are elevating because people are buying are getting rid of it. Can so I, that creates a very a bad scenario. Because I, I have, we don't have that much time yet left. <laughs> okay, and I sorry. Have, okay, so... We all realize at this point that um, the trade wars are not good and easy to win, um, as the, the president said, that there would be significant costs, whatever they are, for both sides, China and the U.S. now. I'm leaving Mexico and Canada out of it because I'm assuming that NAFTA will actually happen. What it's a big assumption. You think? Yeah. Okay, well, say, say, <laughs> say more about that. Why is that a big assumption? That, 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 that NAFTA will negotiate NAFTA? Yeah. Because I don't think there's any indication that the president has the political will or, or any reason to actually, uh, you know, A, that, that, that he has any reason to get to yes. He, Mexico has been his favorite piñata, his favorite punching bag. It's worked for him politically. It's completely full-hearted. I think it's, it's a disaster. But even if the three trade ministers that are together right now in Washington right. are able to reach some agreement in principle. Which, which they're saying they're going to. Which they're but saying they're going to, and I'll take them at their word, although I have my doubts. Yes. Uh, uh, I don't know why President Trump politically, because mm -hmm. he is a political animal, these decisions that he's making are not based on sound economic policy. They're based on his political instincts. And I think as his political fortunes worsen, frankly, with the Mueller investigation and the Cohen lawsuits and mm. criminal, as the political news tightens, as his political fortunes get worse with the midterms and a w potential wave election, he needs red meat for what he perceives as his base. And pounding on Mexico, militarizing the border, uh, threatening these, these desperate children crossing the border, th that, is, that resonates in his base. Mm -hmm. So I see no reason why the president 
would want to, despite all of the economic arguments to the contrary, right. would want to reach this deal. Okay, that's interesting and terrifying. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm assuming, honestly, that the same logic may play out for China, right? China's also been a punching bag to a certain extent, maybe less so with less um, racist undertones at mm -hmm. times. Um, but, uh, I mean, so, what's, so do we think, is there any incentive and I'm looking at you because I'm assuming farmers might be one piece of the, I mean, because you know, some of his base does care about a trade war in a way that might provoke, pr prompt yeah, resolution. So, so I, uh, I have no more expertise in speculating about electoral politics than anybody else in this room does. Uh, I, I've never been elected to anything and I wouldn't know how to go about it. So I'm not gonna try to speculate about what it means to voting. But it, the economic incentives are pretty clear and, and I think it, it's also helpful to say, see, we had a bad deal. I negotiated something. I won. And it doesn't matter if it has to change very much. Some of us that will go through the 400-page the agreement will say, gee, it didn't change all that much. But that didn't stop somebody from claiming mm -hmm. it. And, and I've never met a politician. I've met a lot of them. I've never met one that didn't say, I did a better job in negotiating. Right. And, and so I expect uh, that claim can happen, and I averted this terrible thing they were going to do to us, and we won, and the soybeans are still flowing. Right. So maybe I'm just overly optimistic. I sort of think that's what's likely to happen. Uh, I still say it, it isn't without damage, but I think it's likely that both with NAFTA, I, I'm an optimist on NAFTA, I guess. I think they're going to say, see, we cut a deal. It's a big success. It's a much better NAFTA than we used to have. Uh, we're all heroes, and and it'll it, it'll happen, mm. uh, but again, with not without disruption in the meantime. That's right. that's my biggest concern. But again, his problem with NAFTA, for example, is you know with all these deals, is the trade deficit is his, bar is his barometer. The trade deficit is only going to keep getting worse, not better. Right. And yeah. so how he how he's able to sell it. Also, like the you know, he's counting on a certain number of Democratic votes, and he's raised expectations because this is where this there's this weird, almost Peronist, um, you know, aspect to Trump, where he's kind of like anything he needs to be to everybody. So he's got Sherrod Brown and Peronist Bernie. is a, an Argentinian pop yes, populist. Yeah, yes. yeah. Just in case we weren't all Latin American politics. Maybe. Sorry, uh, but you know, he he he's got Sher he's got Sherrod Brown <laughs> yeah. and Bernie Sanders in his corner on NAFTA. And they're there because they actually expect, when he says he cares about the American worker and getting a better deal for American workers, that he means it, mm. which he doesn't. But they're going to be looking at that agree agreement and saying, so where are the labor improvements? Guess what? There aren't any, really. So right. now he does. You know, so even if they got to an agreement that he embraced, where are the votes to get this thing passed? Right. So, I don't know. I, he, I hate to be a pessimist. He can't put lipstick no, on don't. a pig. <laughs> For China, he can't put lipstick on a pig like so he did with the Korea. Mean? So, Korea, he said this was the worst FTA ever. Of course. And, the, the, and now he said he's fixed it. And all he did was nothing. It was right. a this gigantic the, nothing burger. This is the free trade agreement with right. South Korea that and, there's an agreement. And I think there's a potential, but, but I agree with you about the politics of bashing Mexico, but there's the potential to do that in NAFTA. There's the potential to do that with steel. But with China's different because China, a broad base of US business has serious concerns. Uh -huh. And you can't just paper that over. Yeah, There are 
rising parts of the administration that see China as a threat to our national security. And unlike, I think, with Korea and our allies in Europe, you're not going to have the military kind of and Mattis kind of pushing back mm -hmm. against Trump, not when it comes to China. So, so what? So, okay. So, there's the latest news is that they're sending Mnuchin and Lighthizer, the um, U.S. trade representative, to China next week. Um, I know we don't have crystal balls, but what? do we expect to happen? And you know, what's been going on has been described as saber rattling. Is that, do we expect that to ratchet up or, uh, you know? They're going to school. They're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna meet people like Wan Qishan and Liu He that have been dealing with the US and trade issues for decades. You mean the US side is going to school? US side is going to school. The President Xi's speech a couple weeks ago, I don't know if folks followed it, but it was, uh, it was really interesting. The Chinese are taking the high road, and even, it, this is what I mean about abdicating U.S. leadership in multilateral institutions, like the Chinese are sounding like the voice of reason on trade uh, at the WTO, which is just like Freaky Friday, like what, what happened, invasion of the body snatchers. Um, and now, uh, I think the I think President Xi is. I think they're I think they're taking a very sophisticated, very Chinese long-term approach to this. And I think that uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they if they lock in some of the concessions that Xi has already said he's willing to make, mm -hmm. lifting some of the caps on foreign investment that you were talking about earlier, and um, working with the U.S. on some modest proposals to reduce the trade deficit. And as you were just saying, in that instance, I think Trump could wrap a bow around it and claim victory. Right. So I want to get back to kind of where we started because we, we, part of the reason why Trump was elected was because there are people who are angry about what's happened to their jobs. And if what we're talking about is the fact that Trump, the administration isn't actually going to change all that much in these trade agreements. Um, where, where does that leave us, where does that leave the American worker, and maybe this is a question for Ed or other people, and, and, mm. and where does that leave us politically? Does that mean this issue is going to come back as a political issue in, you know, 2020? I think it's not going to go away at all. I think that uh, technology forces that we've already experienced are going to continue to push and make it even harder and harder for many Americans to get jobs. And I was surprised at how early in the 21st century we had an election that had Trump on one side and Bernie Sanders on the other. That's mm. a symptom of the new world that we're moving into. And it may not be those exact two characters, but you can be sure there are people like them who will be out there on the horizon. What were you going to say? Well, the, the, um, it, it seems there's nothing the, any administration is going to do about long-term job trends. Uh, so, the, and the issue... Said really, like an economist. Well, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, it's a bunch of underlying forces there. Unemployment, of course, is the lowest it's been in a very long time. So it's the kind of statistic that people are used to looking at, like unemployment, looks fine. But it's the non-employment. It's people that are out of mm -hmm. the labor force. It's, it's people that would have normally been at work at age 55 or 60 that aren't working. And, and that really is, that and, that and low wages. And, and I, don't, I don't know what you can do about that as president to solve that other than to do it in the kind of strategy that Ed's talking about, which is a generation kind of change. 
that's a horizon longer than any politician has. Right. Which means, which means you're going to declare victory on a few things. You're going to point to the latest employment number or a wage jump by right. half a percent, claim victory, and, and go on with that. And that seems to be politically what's likely to happen. And I'm just hopeful we don't do a lot of damage along the way. Yeah, well, we'll see. Here's the depressing okay, thing. This like, is the last thing that we're right, going to do. So question. things haven't fundamentally changed. Trade policy, like any policy, is driven by big money. And when I worked on China trade policy, we spent way too much time making China safer for multinational companies. You can call them JP Morgan, you can call them GE, you can call them Apple. They say they're American companies. These are multinational companies. Mm -hmm. they're, uh, their shareholders come from all over the world. Their workers come from all over the world. And when you look at the things President Xi offered to the US, it was basically like, we'll make it easier for big companies to offshore to China. Uh-huh. OK. Um, I think we're going to open it up to questions. I have a question for Professor Lima. Um, um, I was wondering if the low-skilled workers are the ones which have been more harmed by the US manufacturer moving to China. Uh, is the provision of better welfare system for these workers a key to solve this problem rather than a trade war, just like the Europeans are doing with flag security in a way? The workers that you're talking about have been permanently displaced out of manufacturing, and, and they've had uh, good incomes throughout their lives while they're working there. And their next best job, uh, they might have worked in a steel mill in the Midwest or automobile plant. Their next best job might be a, be a gardener in Texas. That takes mm. a lot of time, because they not only have to uh, move to Texas, but they have to lower their aspirations. And the trade assistance programs that have meant to offset that and to facilitate that, they really haven't been very successful. My question is um, kind of related to uh, labor. So we talk about a lot of um, you know, loss, to, loss of jobs, manufacturing and such. Um, but from my experience, uh, it, it seems that there's actually a huge labor shortage of um, you know, well-paid labor jobs. For example, I mean, distribution and trucking industry is in chaos right now. They can't find drivers. Those are well-paying, $60,000, $70,000 jobs, um, you know, unionized. And uh, another one, like agriculture, I heard, also they're having trouble finding farmhands. Um, you know, wages before $8 an hour, now they're like averaging $21 an hour or something like that in California. So where are the workers? If people are looking for jobs, where are they? Well, I do think this is partly related to the dislocation question that Professor Lemer was talking about. That is to say that people are not where the jobs are. And you're right, they're not trained for those jobs. And we do have, uh, in a number of cases, people that have been out of work for a long time. And they have other ways, they've made a living, not a good living, but they've made a living uh, not at those jobs. So I, it, it is a puzzle that at the same time we have people saying, the jobs have disappeared. There are jobs that aren't being filled. And many of them are jobs that don't require uh, four years of college. Uh, there's a number of jobs in, in that are maybe are called the service economy, but they're repair jobs or, or truck driver jobs that are part of the service economy that aren't manufacturing. And I do think that's a puzzle, and that is a problem in having qualified people not, not meaning necessarily high levels of uh, schooling, formal schooling,
but having skills. And that is something where we're, we're also missing that in this country. Hi there, Gavin Dr. Jones from the Consulate General of Canada. Michael, good to see you again at uh, Pacific Council. We talked about NAFTA the other week. Uh, going back to steel and aluminum, Section 232, big concern for Canada, obviously. We are uh, seeking a permanent exemption with no quotas uh, going forward. Today, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced new measures to combat transshipment. Uh, namely uh, customs regulations that strengthen the trade remedy system and address a number of uh, issues down the line. Do you, do, does anybody on the panel think that those measures to you know, show that Canada is doing uh, its best to prevent transition, will they make a difference uh, in seeking that exemption? Let, let me translate for a second. Uh, yeah, thank uh, you. Uh, who, who knew the most technical uh, speaker would be one of the audience? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, but basically, when, when you have these, these rules, something that says it comes from China, if it really came, or says it says came from Canada, but if it really just came from China, spent a week uh, in Vancouver and then was shipped in the U.S., everybody knows that's not quite right. And the question is, how much does a country like Canada make sure that doesn't happen? Well, and it depends on the details. That's why it's a technical question, because there's a bunch of rules on this about country of origin, and, and the technical rules have to be gotten right. And I suspect if, if Canada made some improvements there, uh, uh, it's a problem everywhere in the world, but if Canada made some improvements, that'll help. But uh, you know, who, who knows whether it'll be enough. None, none of the people on this panel are, are members of the administration doing the current negotiation. So is it enough? Who knows? I would just offer that I think it has a lot more to do with whether we reach an agreement on NAFTA than anything. I think if we get a, a deal on NAFTA, Canada got the exemption, regardless of what it might do. May 1st, I predict. <laughs> yeah. I'm Norbert Chen, and I'm not from China. I'm talking <laughs> American living here. So, so I have two questions, actually. First is, why is it that, obviously, the tariffs are so unfair. Why does the US only impose 2% on Chinese autos, whereas China imposes 25% on US autos? And how, who let that happen in the first place? How did it get to that strange point? Okay, and then second of all, the big question for all the people in internet uh, these days is, why is it that major US internet companies like Facebook and Google can't even compete within China, whereas Chinese companies can do the opposite? The focus on reciprocity is, would lead you to trade insanity. So every country is different. Every country has a different political system with different industries that we wanted to be protected. And if we insisted that every single country, if, okay, if Lithuania is gonna protect the hot dog industry, that every other country in the world <laughs> has to protect the hot dog industry. Gosh I mean, the, the, the idea is each country, you get together in a group of countries like in TPP or NAFTA, and you say, these are the industries that we want to protect, like the film industry in Canada, like the agricultural industry in the US. Everybody pick what's most important to them, and then we'll do an agreement that benefits everybody. If you, if you insist on reciprocity, you're going to be closing borders all over the place. Uh, another way to look at it, though, is uh, you know, who lets this happen. In the WTO, when all the, all the nations of the world, the trading nations of the world come together and they all propose and negotiate a tariff schedule, a tax schedule for goods, as a general matter, and I won't get into the weeds, I promise, but as a general matter, 
uh, more developed countries like the United States have lower tariffs, and less developed countries like China, India, Brazil, and many, many other develop, truly developing countries, and there's a big debate about whether China is now you know, a developing economy or, or not. Um, but they're allowed to protect domestic industries in order to give those industries a chance to develop and compete on a global basis. And so there are disparities across the world, uh, even in the same industry, based on the development status of a given country. And part is where you start from. So if, if uh, there are lots of cases in negotiating with the European Union, for example, they had a 70% tariff on some item. They agree to bring it down to 10. You think you've made a lot of progress. The US tariff started at four and went to two. Well, it, the ending point is 10 versus two, so they're still higher. But the industries involved would say, that's a deal worth having because we make so much progress. And some of that happened in the ex what's called the accession agreement. When China joined the WTO, they set a bunch of, of, of tariff levels they were allowed to have, really bringing them down from really high levels to what are still too high but fairly moderate. And that was a part of the deal to let them in. And, and just to answer your second question, I mean, you guys know this, right? China's a dictatorship, and there's no freedom of information, and they censor stuff. There is no way China is going to let a foreign company no, get all the information about who's looking at what websites, who's taking an Uber to what locations, who's doing what credit card transactions. They will never let a foreign company get that information. If everybody got to the level you'd like to have them be technologically within the next 10 years, would there really be enough jobs for them? I think when we talk about seven or eight percent of the people that you, you know, are only the only ones that are in industrial in industrial jobs right now, is it going to be 12 percent when everybody is technologically so adept that they can do all of the jobs technology demands? I don't think so. I think when all of the people that are technologically adept, yeah. Are, are available and, and, and working, it's still only going to be 10 or 12% of them. So Robert Reich is suggesting a basic income for everybody. <laughs> I, I worry about what you just said, which is that um, there's a talent component to um, the technology that is in place today. So the, those who can really do the coding, they get the education, they work hard, they're extremely productive. But those who don't have the talent to do the coding, they're going to get left behind. I've had students who do um, coding for me and there's a very small fraction who can do what I would consider commercially viable coding. And if that's the, if that's the job, then it's going to be wall-e for most of us here. And, uh, and there's going to be a small sliver of, of jobs for American. But you have to offset that with tax policy, like, like the gentleman said. But, but Ed, you know, we do have, I don't know, 300 years of history of this, and, and I don't see anything fundamentally different about this round of technical improvements relative to the telephone or the telegraph or automobiles relative to horses. All of those things were much more labor-intensive than what replaced them. When you get and, to work and tomorrow and there's a robot doing your work, you'll feel differently about this. It, it, <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> Hello, my name is Steve Huang. Uh, thank you for letting me ask the question. Uh, earlier, you, you touched a little bit about uh, China holding some of our debt. And um, as you pointed out, they could create a little bit of discomfort by doing some things with that debt. 
like selling he it. Says, he says no, I say uh, yes. And then, and they'll, then, ne- they'll never do it. Right. And then there's, there's also the, the point of view where they'll never do it because after a certain point of like a few trillion dollars, that debt becomes uncollectible, right? And even though whether or not it's in their interest, that it becomes uncollectible. So, so I, well, I put it this way. So I, I work at an investment firm and we have a $13 billion emerging market fund. It is really hard managing 13 billion. Like the Chinese central bank has 3 trillion. It is really, really, really hard to manage a fund that's that Feel big. Feel sorry for them. Yeah. And, no, no, there is intense political pressure, and I forget the, you gotta remember politics exists in every country. There is intense political pressure on the people that manage China's reserves. That's the people's money, and they gotta manage it well. And if they even threaten to dump treasuries, you would see instability in global financial markets. It would hurt themselves. And the other thing we've all been talking about is right now, China is being viewed as the responsible party. If it did something that led to kind of instability in global financial markets, mm. it, it would lose that position. Last thing I'll say is it has a thousand ways of hitting back at the US that causes us more pain, causes them less pain, and is more politically popular in China. They can go after our tech co- companies. That's so much easier for them to do than dumping treasuries. But, but let's understand this. When we complain to China about the deficit, that's like going to your lender and asking for a higher interest rate. And China can provide that to us if they feel like it's wise. So that was just the first part of my question. <laughs> so the second part of my question is, if basically our U.S. dollar is a fiat currency, which is uh, basically printed through debt, and their yuan is also a fiat currency basically printed through debt, in the end, with the trade deficit, what difference does it make? Just like, just like every, you know, the Congress is always voting for to up their own, like, spending bill limits. Like, what difference does it make? Is it's not even like real money. It's not collectible <laughs> between you two. And, wow. And all, all you're doing is just targeting little industries and companies and hurting, you know, just, yeah, it's all political statements, right? Well, all of our investments are just numbers on hard drives. They're not real, so why worry about it? <laughs> he, he didn't really mean that. <laughs> Just to clarify. Well, maybe Natalie put it best earlier when she said interesting and terrifying. <laughs> um, before we do close, I want to thank the Anderson School of Management at UCLA for co presenting tonight. A big round of applause for them, please. And also a big thank you to the Japanese American National Museum for welcoming Soko into its new home here at the the National Center for the Preservation of a Democracy. So a round of applause for them, too. Uh, Not not the least, as thank you all of you for coming out tonight. Please stick around for the post-event reception, especially if you didn't have a chance to ask your question. All of our featured guests will be at the reception tonight, so grab a glass of beer or wine with them. And finally, a big round of applause for our great experts tonight. Thank you so much. (laughs) 